During the uh, Protestant Reformation, in the beginning, Martin Luther felt himself uh, consistently tempted by the devil. He would go through some very, very difficult attacks at times. He felt assailed often, uh, even to the point one time where he threw his inkwell against Satan and missed <laughs> Uh, and hit the wall and left this big ink spot on the wall. You can actually go to Wartburg Castle, see where he was actually, the room he was in at the time. Uh, but they've, uh, they've blocked off the room so he can't walk in there because tourists over the hundreds of years of making a pilgrimage to that place have wanted to touch the ink spot and, and over the years have removed it by their constant touch, so you actually can't see that anymore. But uh, it, th th that goes down from legend. Because of the difficulty he struggled with, he called it anfactung, the unbridled assault by Satan, because it was desire of Martin Luther to go back to the wonderful, biblical, primitive worship that we see in the book of Acts. But one of the things that came out of those terrible assaults have benefited us greatly. Through all that, he wrote the great battle hymn of the Reformation, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills of prevailing. For still our ancient foe, that's the devil, our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. In our text today, in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, we're going to see when Jesus Christ went through his own difficult time with Satan, being taken out into the desert to be tempted. Uh, and uh, this is fallen, of course, across, uh, after that, and it so often happens, after that, in a sense, mountaintop experience of his baptism, when the very heavens opened up and God's voice declared, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. As Kent Hughes says, his temptation was the counter to his baptism. Heaven opened at one and hell yawned at the other and both prepared Jesus to live as the victorious son. My hope is that as we unpack the truths of this text that we will be able to understand the temptations that we are under by Satan and to prevail as our Lord and Savior prevailed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do turn to you and pray blessings upon our time, God, and help us to understand all that's meant here in this text. Luke put this passage here, as did the other gospel writers, for us to understand what Jesus went through so that we too can have victory uh, in Christ. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to call these things to mind even as we leave this day. But help us to leave out those doors, out front, ready to do battle, ready to have victory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please do turn to Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. I will read that text in its entirety, and then we'll talk about how we're going to break that text down this morning. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, God says, and Luke writes, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit, into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. 
and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only will you serve. And he took him up to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. As we look at this text, we're going to see the Spirit leads in verses, uh, leads Christ in verses 1 through 2. And then we're going to see the devil tempts Christ in verses 3 through 12 with the three different temptations that are representative of much of what we go through ourselves. And then the devil leaves Christ in verse 13. And you might find your home group helps insert to be of assistance as we look at this amazing text, this, this true life encounter between the Son of God and the greatest evil force on planet Earth. First of all, we see the Spirit leads Christ into uh, verses 1 through 2. And it says here, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, goes forth. You never want to fight the devil in the flesh. You want to be in the Spirit. And, of course, Jesus did everything in the Spirit. Uh, and, and one of the reasons why I think uh, Luke points that out is so unlike so many temptations we go through, Jesus is not having to make up for or battle temptation because he's compromised, because he's sinned. He's not having to fix things he's already done wrong. Whereas so often we are tempted because we gave in to earlier temptations and we've received more and more temptations. He is full of the Holy Spirit. He is sinless son of God. He goes forth here uh, and in an example that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That being filled with the Holy Spirit is the undisputed evidence that you're actually a Christian. It's difficult for us to know whether someone's actually a Christian. Sometimes people react emotionally. Sometimes they feel pressured to react, that kind of thing. But having the Holy Spirit, there should be demonstrations of the, the, the life that you now lead as a result of having that Holy Spirit. When Paul was being converted there on his road to Damascus, Ananias comes to him and tells him that he will regain his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will be converted. But it's also the way that we are to, once we are converted, the way we are to live uh, Ephesians chapter 5 verses 18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the ongoing principle of walking with God for God in the rest of our lives. Galatians 5.13 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's the positive counterpart. It's walk righteously so that you do not sin. And really, in so many ways, taking that po positive lead is is most helpful. He was led into the Spirit by the wilderness. You know what's interesting about that text? If you look at the parallel text, which is always a good, a good thing to do when you come to a text that's in the other Gospels. Mark actually says the Spirit immediately drove him out to the wilderness. He, he was compelled to go and do battle with Satan himself. Now, folks, that's a, there's an application there because sometimes we, we think, why have we been put in this situation? Why does life seem to be just crashing around me? Let me tell you why. Because an omnipresent, omnipotent God who loves you has placed you in that situation because there's areas in your spiritual growth that he wants to see that will not happen apart from that situation. So if he's going to, in a sense, push 
Jesus out into the desert to be trained up in righteousness, to have a victory over the evil one, he's probably going to do the same thing for you. So don't be in despair when that happens. But again, he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was armed. He was doing battle. Jesus is on the offensive, folks. He, in a sense, is the predator. The devil is the one who's the prey here. He goes into the wilderness. This is the area of the Dead Sea. It's extremely barren. Uh, there's no life. You can't even raise uh, animals out in this area. It's just uh, full of boulders and rocks and deep ravines and, and that sort of thing. I mean, it probably looked like hell itself. Imagine, I mean, the environment itself looked like hell. I've already made a mistake in this sermon because it was getting a little stuffy in here. I asked one of the deacons to turn the air conditioner down. I should have kept it really high. See, wow, I was, I was there, you know. <laughs> that was one great sermon, so I blew that already. Uh, and uh, that, area, uh, that area that Jesus was in, in Hebrew is called the Dishimon, the Dishimon, which means the devastation. So I mean, there's just nothing out there. So God drove him out where there's nothing. In other words, if God's not taking care of Jesus himself, Jesus will not make it back. And he did this for 40 days, 40 days. Now, if you know, if you've read Old Testament scriptures, you understand the principles of how God uses numbers. 40 is that number of testing, right? 40 days is that number of testing. But in particular, the testing that's involved here was the testing of Israel in the desert, in the wilderness. This was not lost on Jesus. He understood this because he's quoting Deuteronomy every time he responds to the devil. So the, the wilderness itself reminded him of the connection with the, uh, the, 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 the failure of Israel uh, in the wilderness wanderings for those 40 years. And then it says here, of course, he is being tempted by the devil. If you don't know, the devil is the great foe of everything that we stand for. Uh, he, the devil means diabolos or the slanderer or accuser. He is also called Satan the adversary. Uh, and and uh, he was once called uh, Lucifer. If you understand the prophecies of Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, you understand that he was the highest of all cre created creatures. Uh, church tradition says that he was in charge of the music of heaven. He was glorious to look upon and he got prideful and he got vain and he decided to rebel against God. And from what we understand in Revelation 12, he probably took one third of the angels with him. They are now called demons. But basically, his, his desire here for meeting Jesus in the desert, he wanted to derail God's plan of redemption. Now, I, even though he had the prophecies like we have the prophecies, he probably didn't fully understand how God was going to go about do this, uh, how he was going to go about to redeem you. But he knew that Jesus was a center part of this. He was probably there at the baptism. He'd probably been following Jesus and trying to understand these things. So his thought was, I've got to take out Jesus. I've got to get him to sin in order to destroy this plan of redemption. You see, the angels are not redeemable. They don't have the opportunities that we have to trust the Lord and to come back and to repent from our sins. They are fallen and will ever be fallen. And he would want to make us just like that. If Jesus were to sin... The, everything would be over with for us. There would be no hope. There would be no plan B here. Riken reminds us that if, G, that if Jesus followed the lead of the Spirit, so should we, trusting even our trials and temptations are under the sovereign control of God himself. And again, God loves you. God loves you. 
So if you're going through temptations, you're going through trials, there can be joy even in those difficulties knowing that there's a good reason for it. We are all the better because Jesus was forced out into the wilderness by uh, the Holy Spirit. And, and you get some details here. Again, Luke loves details because this is an historical account. This isn't fable. This isn't myth. He ate nothing during those days. How long have you fasted before? You don't have to answer that publicly. But if you think, I, I think a lot, you know, a lot of people may fast as many as three days. You think about, how about adding 37 days to those three days? You remember how you felt at the end of three days? You felt weak. You felt agitated. That's one of the, the hard parts about a fast is you do it to draw closer to God, but then you're so hard to get along with. You kind of wonder if it's, if it's working or not. Forty days he fasted. But the thing about a fast, and I know this from experience, and I also know this from Scripture, it's as much a mental thing as it is a physical thing. The physical, you, you recognize the loss of food, the loss of energy, that kind of thing. You get a funny taste in your mouth. You know your body is, is, is groaning for some food. But the victory comes so much in the mental attitude. If you've not read the book Unbroken or seen that movie, the movie takes out some of the spiritual impact of what, the, what that life was. But Louis Zepparini, Olympic runner, uh, shot down in the Pacific, uh, captured by the Japanese, tortured, and that kind of thing, ended up becoming converted uh, uh, after he became an alcoholic and was saved at a Billy Graham crusade and worked in ministry for the rest of his life. But there, there's, a, there's a scene in the book where uh, his uh, B-25 bombers shot down and three of them made it to the life raft, he and, uh, and his old companion. But there was another officer that was there who was just in panic the entire time. And, uh, and when they woke up the second night of, of it being in that life raft, uh, they looked over and found out that this third guy who was so anxious about the situation had taken and eaten the entire box of emergency rations. The Navy would pack those life rafts with like uh, energy bars that had uh, 2,000, 3,000 calories in them. He ate the entire box, the entire, all three people's that because he was so panicked. He was so worried about starving. What's interesting he was the only one that died in that life raft. That, the, the, his, his taking everybody else's food and gorging himself on it. That, it wasn't a physical thing. He died of lack of hope. He died of despair. Jesus has been going for 40 days here. But his eyes were always on the Lord. He loved the Lord. He knew the Lord brought him out there. He knew the Lord had a plan of redemption for him that had been agreed upon. And he was not going to fail in the task here. But the interesting thing is people wonder about this sometimes. It says, And when those days were ended, he was hungry. Well, you're like, no, duh. <laughs> but if you've not fasted for a really long period of time, one of the things that, uh, that you'll know is that after about four or five days, your body actually stops being hungry. It actually adjusts and says, okay, we've got a problem here. We're going to fix that. And you actually lose those, that hunger sensation. And it may be gone for several weeks. It's so interesting. If you um, allied POWs uh, uh, very often, as the allies would come in, they would liberate a POW camp. And you can see pictures of the people who've been liberated, and they're carrying around baby formula. And what happened is the Allies, after liberating so many of these POW camps where, everybody, camps where everybody was so sick and malnourished, they realized that if you all of a sudden give a body that's been going a bunch of food, you actually can go into cardiac arrest. Your body can't handle it. So they would bring them back up to a healthy state by giving them baby formula. This is about where Jesus was. 
at this, at this point in time, at this point of, of, of starvation. For many of us Westerners, we got enough insulation and stored energy. We could have handled that maybe four days. I don't know that Jesus had all that, but he's got a mind that's devoted to the Lord. He is not going to give up. The other thing people think about was, okay, yeah, so this was a big trial. He went 40 days without food. He's out there, but he is God. He had like an advantage. You're wrong if you think that. Is, I mean, you're right thinking he's God. <laughs> I didn't just commit heresy. But uh, he was not relying on his divine nature. He, the temptation was 100% in his human nature. Why is that? Well, as, uh, it, uh, because James uh, 1.13 says, God cannot be tempted by evil. He endured this in his human nature uh, because, according to Hebrews 2.17, he had to be like, like his brothers in every respect. And so then we now come into the point where we see these three different temptations. It's likely the devil was tempting Jesus the entire 40 days while he was there. But in particular, uh, there's these three, this, these three points of dialogue between uh, Jesus and between the devil. First of all, he says to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man should not live by bread alone. So here's the test of God's provision. And this is a good one to start off with. Because we understand rationally, we're all comfortable here, it's Sunday, we're looking forward, but there are times we question God's provision. Is he really going to take care of us the way he says he's going to? So this is a good one for us to go to school on here. The devil is casting doubt on what God said at his baptism. What did God say at Jesus' baptism? This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So he says here, if you really are the son, and he's starting to go back at that. This is what happens to you. If you're really a Christian, is God really loves you? Does he really keep his promises? Do you think he's going to really take care of you when he's got all this unrest in the Middle East? Does it, does it really matter what your grade's going to be on that exam? Does it matter who uh, you know, you're going to marry, that kind of thing? So he's basically saying, prove it to me that you are the son of God. This is what he did with Eve, right? Has God really said? He calls into question the word of God. And he gives them a test. Command these stones to become breads here. Again, this is, he's not super original here. Remember how he first tested Adam and Eve? With food. How is he testing Jesus? With food. Command these stones to become bread here. But this would be forbidden fruit, just like the fruit was in the garden. Why? Is it wrong that Jesus, after not eating for four days, would have a meal? Not wrong at all. But it would be wrong of him to listen to Satan. And what, he, what he's trying to do is basically just don't worry about faith. Go ahead and live by sight. Turn this rock into bread. As one commentator says, one way or another, all of Satan's attacks strike at God's word. Whenever we are tempted to doubt the truth of the Bible, we may be sure the devil is up to his old tricks. So he is in his human nature. He is going through a temptation that many of us go through. Not to this extreme, but we still go through it. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself of nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So basically the devil's saying, yeah, I know you emptied yourself to become human, but what I want you to do is you just, go, just, just get into that God nature real quick and make some bread and then you go right back. Just a little teeny compromise, just a small little step to preserve yourself here. 
So really, it's not so much about food. It's about trust. And what's his, his response? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He's not going to be like Esau who gave up his whole birthright for a bowl of stew. Deuteronomy, if you look at the entire context, this might have also reminded Jesus to be encouraged by God's provision. Deuteronomy chapter 8, where Jesus gets this verse, says this, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. That's why we are, go through these difficulties. Whether you would keep his commandments or not, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna. God did provide, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. If you had a choice between food and the word of God, choose the word of God every time. Choose it every single time. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. There is no exception. You trust what the Bible says because it was written by God. And, and that's the great level or that's the great power. Our emotions play tricks with us. Our mind gets confused. But the Bible does not err. It does not lie. God's word led him into the wilderness. God's word will sustain him while he is there. And indeed, we find out later, looking at the other accounts, that the angels do come and minister to him. So we never need to doubt God's provision. Matthew 6 says this, Do not worry then, say, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Philippians 4 says, My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Now, remember here, here, too, the difference. Adam was tempted in, in the absolute perfect circumstances. He was in paradise. He had a full belly. He was completely comfortable. There was nothing to harm him. The weather was perfect. Everything was perfect. And he failed. Jesus is in the absolute worst circumstances. I don't think it could get worse than what Jesus went through. And he won. And he won. That's also an example to us. We can prevail against the evil one. The second temptation, of course, comes up here. Satan doesn't give up. Uh, he attempts another approach. You, know, you notice that and if you look at the news, you think about these people who hate the Lord and, and, and hate so much else. So they just never seem to give up. They just keep going. I think part of that is all of us of us are trying to work or go to school and make a living for themselves. That's just what their full-time job is just to create anarchy or something like that. They never give up. This next test is a test of power. Satan's goal was to get Jesus to doubt God's plan or to bypass him. So what did he do? He took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world for a moment of time. I, this was some kind of spectacular thing. He took him up to a high place in some sort of vision or some kind of long-distance view. He showed him Rome. He showed him Persia. He showed him maybe the, the Chinese dynasties, whatever it might be. And he said, all of this, all of this can be yours. And he says here, I will give this authority and their glory. Now, the question is, 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 is Satan lying? Did he make this up? Well, Satan is called the ruler of this world, but God is the one that determines the boundaries of nations. 
So that's another thing to, to remember is that there's never going to be a time for you, believer, to, 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 where Satan just has his way with you. He is a lion, but he is a chained lion. Satan is, in a sense, God's Satan. So, yes, he has this authority over the world. He is the prince of the power of the air. But our God, our Father, is king of the universe. And of course, all he wants is a little bit of worship, right? I mean, can't we just bow down and at least you know, pretend to worship this guy? I mean, wow, the kingdoms of the world. That'd be really, really nice, right? Uh, so basically, as one commentator says, Satan's proposal would have allowed Jesus to bypass all that suffering, enable him to immediately take what was rightfully his. It's bypassing the cross in order to gain the crown. But the part, part of the reason why we can glorify Christ the way we do is because he earned that crown by the cross. And this is one of those things that so many liberal theologians, they, they, they find the cross awkward. Uh, uh, humanists find the cross awkward, but the cross is the center of everything we believe. If there was no resurrection, you have wasted your Sunday morning. But there was a resurrection. I love that song in Revelation chapter 4 where the elders uh, uh, say his, that you are worthy to receive honor and glory and power for you created all things and existed and were created. And they go on to sing this new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed your people uh, uh, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Satan's saying, don't worry about all that sacrifice stuff. Just go ahead and take it. Go ahead and do it. I mean, look at these people. They're such losers anyway. Why in the world would you want to go through all that? So there's a whole lot more to this than just you being in charge of Persia. As McKinney said, it is not exaggeration that our entire salvation hangs on Jesus' answer. This is an epic moment right here. And he goes on, uh, Jesus goes on and says, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Here he is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. There's, he says, I can't worship you. I'm going to worship God only. Besides, you're not God. You're a created thing as well. And he understands, too, that, there, that, that the, all of these kingdoms are, are going to be his anyway. Psalm 2 says this. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So the lesson here is Jesus did things God's way, which is always best, but it's almost always more difficult, isn't it? There's just no shortcuts with obedience. There's no shortcuts to holiness. And, and the devil is offering a shortcut here. A painless way to get the glory. And this is attractive for us too. There's no shortcuts. You have to walk the walk. You have to go through the difficulty. Oswald Chambers reminds us, and this is important folks, that lust is this. I must have it now. That's what lust really is. I must have it now. I must have it my way, not God's way. I'm, not, I'm tired of waiting for it. I'm going to take it now. MacArthur summarizes this point. Christians must be aware of the temptation to lose faith in God's plan, particularly when they are enduring difficult circumstances. There are no shortcuts. He quoted me. No. God's way is always the best. His infinite wisdom guarantees that any plan of his is perfect and cannot be improved upon. Believers must therefore wait patiently for God to act on their behalf and refuse the temptation to take matters into their own hands. 
It's important to know this now because when those affections and emotions and the fatigue, the hunger gets to you, you need to remember the principle here. There's another possible application. This is a, I'm doing a little bit of eisegesis. This isn't the point why Luke wrote this, but I think it matters. And I think it's a good time to insert this. Twice, Satan calls into question Christ's credentials. And twice, Jesus didn't feel the need to justify himself, to explain himself to the evil one. And I was just recently reminded of this, uh, uh, this quote from uh, Tim Keller. And I want you all to listen to this because so much of your misery is because you feel like you have to justify yourself. You have to rank up. You've got to be prettier or more intelligent or have more money or have a better car than somebody else. Listen to what Keller says. Every person must find some way to justify their existence and to stave off the universal fear that they're a bum. In more traditional cultures, the sense of worth and, and identity comes from fulfilling duties to family and giving service to society. In our contemporary individualistic culture, we tend to look at our achievements, our social status, our talents, or our love relationships. There are an infinite variety of identity bases. Some get to our sense of self from gaining and wielding power, others from human approval, others from self-discipline and control. But everyone is building their identity on something. Pride is the end of hope. And if you are devoting yourself to justifying yourselves by competing with others and by, uh, by, by having to, uh, to, to wear yourself out to kind of tell the world, I matter, you're in a losing Battle. Why? Because that's counter to the way you were designed. Augustine says this. If there is a God who created you in the deepest chambers of your soul simply cannot be filled up by anything less. So what does Christ say? Christ justifies you. You are declared from the heights of heaven. If you're a Christian, you are justified. When God justifies you, you don't have to wear yourself out and be uh, groaning under the sin of envy trying to compete with everybody else. And what will happen if you will settle on that wonderful truth, you'll actually end up in many ways probably beating the competition because you're looking to God for the results instead of what you can do against somebody else. Matthew 11, Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. So often we create our own problems, our own burdens, our own depressions, our own anxieties, because we feel like we've got to declare ourselves and get respect. If you are a Christian, you are justif justified. You need to start learning to rest in that and to enjoy that. Then we have the great third temptation here, verses 9 through uh, 12 here. F Satan is picking up on Christ's pattern here, right? He tempts Christ, Christ comes back with some scriptures, so he's thinking, aha, I'll use the Bible to go against him here. So he's testing the believing of God's word uh, in this particular point in time, and he's hoping to sort of force God into a corner. He takes him up on the pinnacle of the, the the pinnacle of the temple. The, uh, uh, the pinnacle of the temple here. 
this is probably the roof over the uh, Kidron Valley, 450 feet high. It's up there. He says, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down here. So again, he's calling in to uh, uh, God, to uh, Jesus, to justify himself. I really am the Son of God. Jesus just sort of ignores him here. But this is interesting, too, because it was actually uh, what's fitting with the custom and the thought of the time. According to the Midrash records, uh, the, uh, the rabbis said this, Our teachers have taught the writing saying that when the king, the Messiah, reveals himself, he will come and stand on the roof of the temple. Isn't that interesting? Same thing. Here's a shortcut. Let's just go ahead and get that over with so everybody will see you. When you jump off and you fly, wow, they're going to really bow down to you. Well, he walked on water and they didn't bow down to him. He fed 5,000 they didn't bow down to him. But, you know, the devil doesn't know that yet. So basically, if you're going to show up, how much better if you could actually fly off of there? And what does Jesus say? Uh, yeah, well, he rebukes him, right? He, he said, uh, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6, 16 here. And uh, he said, I'm just not going to jump off this thing. As Sproul says, I don't have to jump off this temple to know the angels will guard me. My father said it and his words uh, is truth. So if Jesus had failed at any one of these temptations, uh, three temptations, any one of these points, we would be doomed. But he succeeded in every one of these. Hebrews 2.18 goes on to tell us, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to come to the aid of those who are also being tempted. Then we see here that the devil leaves Christ, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an appropriate time. Matthew tells us that the, at that point in time, the, the angels came and ministered to Christ. So he actually they, he just waited a few more minutes and got the blessing that... Uh, Satan tried to get him to get here. And how, does, how do we follow in Jesus' pattern here? Well, we do what he did. James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. How else do we fight the devil this way? I mean, he is the devil, right? You know, or his minions. Well, we do what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. We put on the whole armor of God. That you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against rulers, but against rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Your conflict with an individual, your discouragement over where our government's going, is a spiritual war. And those folks are pawns. In that, that game of spiritual chess, in a sense. And it's really important. that By keeping that in mind, it will keep you from hating them. It will help you to love your enemies. But you can't go out that You can't go into full-armed combat with no armor, with no weapon. So you are to put on the belt of truth. You are to put the breastplate of righteousness. Shoes of the gospel of peace. The shield of faith. The helmet of salvation. The sword of the spirit. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10 that these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction for whom the end of the ages has come. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Look for the way of escape. Look for the way of escape. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, as Paul promises uh, those in the church of Rome. Well, Martin Luther fought the devil, and Martin Luther won. What's the name of our church? <laughs> 
Christ Reformed Church. We are a Reformation Church. We are here because he didn't cave. He didn't compromise. He couldn't be bribed. He was willing to be martyred for the faith as so many that had gone before and so many that have gone after. When Martin Luther was asked how he overcame the devil, he replied, Well, when he comes knocking upon the door of my heart and asks, Who lives here? The dear Lord Jesus goes to the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here, uh, but he has moved out. Now I live here. See, the same power that gave Jesus Christ victory lives in you if you're a believer, and he will give you victory so that we can sing, and though this world with devil's fields should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little world, word shall fail him. Amen. Father, I do pray that you would help us to have eyes to see and understand the warfare that we are part of. Help us to... To, to follow the line, onward Christian soldiers. The victory is already there. And we will be taken home one day in a place we will never have to battle again. We will enjoy eternal bliss. Until that time, help us to be those who keep on the full armor of God. And consider it joy that you entrust us with the kind of tests that will come our way for sure. Bless us and help us to encourage those who are faint of heart and help us to charge the gates of hell in the power of the Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.